welcome to Off Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. Today I bring you Gina Riley, an academic researcher in New York City who is best known for her 2013 studies and 2015 studies of grown unschoolers, which she co-authored with Peter Gray. But what you probably don't know about Gina is that she's also an authority in the realm of self-determination theory. This is where the phrase intrinsic motivation comes from. She's done lots of research into how this crosses over with the realm of home education and self-directed learning. She has lots of research interests that I was not aware of. This conversation went so many places. Gina is fascinating. Without further ado, here she is. My guest today is Dr. Gina Riley of Hunter College in New York City. Gina, welcome to the podcast. So nice to be here. Wonderful to have you. And I've wanted to have you on for a long time. I've known about your research, but I've only known about a small part of your research, I've realized. Your research goes way beyond the survey of grown unschoolers that you did with Peter Gray. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, it does. And you're even writing a book right now. What's the book about? I am. It's an academic book, uh, tentatively entitled Unschooling, uh, Exploring Learning Beyond the Classroom. And it's really a summary of academic research on unschooling um, from the 1800s to the present. Um, and then the last chapter, of course, goes into the future of what unschooling might look like in the future in many different spaces. I am really looking forward to that book. Thanks, me too. It's been fun writing. (laughs) Can you take us back to the beginning of your story, how you got into this realm? There's not many people like you, people who are are seriously looking at self-directed education from an academic viewpoint. So what's your origin story? Yeah, so um, my son was born in 1996, and I was a single mother, uh, no other parent involved, and I was literally living in the basement of my parents' house, Um, and I had gotten my bachelor's, and I was looking into a master's thesis, and I remember just like being like, oh my gosh, like what am I going to do my master's on? Um, And in the year 2000, I two things happen. The first thing is I read an article by Martin Seligman on positive psychology in The American Psychologist. And I thought, yes, like this is the realm I want to be in. Um, I want to be in positive psychology. I've never been one to look at weaknesses or faults. I've always been one to look at strengths um, and look at well-being. And so I was like, yeah, that's the realm I want to be in. Um, And then I was reading the New York Times and I found an article in the year 2000 also um, on Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan's work of the University of Rochester, self-determination theory. And in this article, they're talking about intrinsic motivation. And I was really like, yeah, this is exactly, it was more like, this is the life I want to live and this is the life I want for my own child. Um, At that point, we hadn't made a decision as to, you know, what type of schooling um, my son was going to to have. I mean, I was kind of going, thinking of homeschooling, but not really there yet. Um, And I read that article. And then this whole thing with intrinsic motivation, just it was really a light bulb moment. It was really, yes, this is how I want to live my life. And also, yes, this is what I want to study for the rest of my life. 
Um, I also, you know, when we made the decision or I made the decision to unschool my son, um, it was a really, really rough decision in many ways. Um, everyone expected my son to go to traditional school. I come from a family of educators. We have never done anything different. Mm. And so when I had said to my parents, you know, I don't, I don't think Ben will be going to kindergarten. I can't tell you the amount of backlash. <laughs> um, and my parents are wonderful people who now purport, you know, how amazing self-directed learning is. Uh, you converted um, them. Yeah, right. <laughs> it took a lot of research and a lot of articles to convert them. <laughs> um, but really, you know, my research started really trying to legitimize, like, my own personal art, my son and I's decision to uh, not do school. And I, I really felt like as a single mother, I had to prove something and I had to prove something to my parents and I had to prove something to my neighbors and I had to prove that this was okay and it was, you know, it was legitimate and that people could do it. Um, and so while unschooling, I also completed a master's thesis and then later a doctoral dissertation on the topic of self-determination and cognitive evaluation theory um, in homeschoolers versus traditionally schooled students. And I mean, again, my research has always just been my quiet way of saying like, yeah, I, I always knew we were doing the right thing for us. Um, and I always just had to prove it to, you know, parents and neighbors and, and people in our town um, who this was very new to. So again, I've kind of done research in a quiet way. Um, and it's it's helped our journey in a lot of ways, just in terms of everyone just feeling like it was okay. It was allowed. Um, it helped your journey and your son's journey. Yeah, it really did. And when I say we, it was it was myself and my son. Mm -hmm. um, and we were really just looking for someone to say, like, it's okay. And I guess, like, in a little tiny way, I I had to be that person to sort of bring upon research saying, oh, okay, it is okay. So I want to get into defining positive psychology and self-determination theory for those who are not familiar with those terms. But before we do that, I'm curious, it, it sounds like you started with with a very clear goal in mind of of justifying unschooling and self-directed learning um, through an academic career. In this process, you know, as an academic, you have to be open to any results that appear. Have you discovered anything that has actually surprised you going in the other direction? Have you discovered anything that makes you less confident or maybe a bit, bit more skeptical about the, the ideology, the, the dogma of unschooling and, and full-time self-directed learning? It's so interesting because we always talk about researcher bias, right? <laughs> we always <laughs> talk about like you're looking for a particular thing to happen. Um, and I've, it, you know, I've never been there. Um, I've always just been exploring learning and teaching. Um, you have to understand that like I have this foot in the world of alternative education, but also for the majority of my life, for the majority of my career, I also support, um, teach, instruct, coordinate uh, individuals who are going to become teachers in high schools. Um, so I have one foot in the very public school, New York City public school realm, and I have one foot in the unschooling, homeschooling realm. So when I do research, I'm never, ex I really am coming from a neutral perspective. Yes, I'm hoping to justify my choices. Mm -hmm. Absolutely mm -hmm. not lying about that one. Um, but I'm also, you know, saying what works just 
within education, right? Um, have I gotten surprising results? Yeah, I remember my doctoral dissertation results were really surprising. Um, you know, everyone talks about homeschooling and unschooling and and the whole social aspect, right? Everyone's concerned about the social aspect. And when exploring my doctoral dissertation, it was surprising to me that that wasn't really a problem, that homeschooled students felt as related to their community, as related to their neighborhood and the world around them uh, as traditionally schooled students. So I think that was something early on that surprised my dissertation advisors, but also surprised me um, because in the 90s and the early 2000s, there was so much about like the socially isolated homeschooler mm -hmm. and schooler. So that definitely surprised me. Um, but in terms of the other stuff, again, I, I don't go in expecting a certain outcome. I love research because it's the mystery, right, of like what you're going to find and what you're going to get. Um, and so I really I really depend on that neutrality. Uh, again, I'm a I'm a person who has unschooled their child, but also very much supports uh, public school and public teachers in a big way. And I just want to really research education, um, especially intrinsically motivated education. On your Hunter College webpage, I see that the classes that you're teaching are mostly about how to help adolescents or students in general with learning disabilities, uh, how to read, how to teach math or organizational skills. And it, so it looks like you don't even get much opportunity as an academic to talk about self-determination theory or alternative methods of education. Yeah, it's so interesting. I teach a lot of very, I mean, like I said, I teach public school teachers and I teach a lot of very specific classes. I teach about disability. I teach about uh, social historical perspectives and education. And so I try not to bring in my personal uh, ideas into my teaching because I feel like as a facilitator or as a teacher, um, you want to try to be as neutral as possible. I believe strongly in neutrality. There are so many ideas. There are so many good ideas in this world. And I don't ever want to shut a door. And I especially don't want to ever shut a door to my teachers who really spend most of their week with kids. And honestly, I mean, I honor my teachers so much as I know that they really, truly are trying. I know that they really, truly want to always do the right thing. Um, is there stress from administration? Is there stress from Common Core to do things a particular way? Absolutely. Um, but I also know that my teachers are very open to ideas like more intrinsic motivation. And so I talk about intrinsic motivation and begin the conversation in that way. Um, and then sometimes we get into this discussion about intrinsically motivated learning, which, you know, goes into the whole notion of self-directed education and the whole notion of there are a whole bunch of people who don't attend school and that's okay too. So the conversation sometimes goes that way. Um, I certainly don't press it and I certainly don't open the conversation in that way. But I think my teachers, I think educators as a whole are curious about how learning happens. Um, and I think that they see within their schools the benefits of intrinsically motivated learning in however setting or however that occurs. Um, and so, yeah, I start, I really start the conversation with self-determination theory and intrinsic motivation, and we see where it goes from there. 
Well, that's a perfect segue. Let's talk about self-determination theory. And maybe could you start with just defining what positive psychology is? Because to my understanding, that's the larger umbrella under which self-determination theory is located. Yeah, exactly. Um, So in terms of positive psychology, you know, prior to the year 2000, psychology was all about um, diagnoses and finding, you know, what people's weaknesses were. And the year 2000 was really a big year in the realm of psychology. Martin Seligman wrote that landmark article. And he said, you know, we've been focusing so much on weakness, and we've been focusing so much on what's wrong with a person. Let's turn it around as a, you know, career. Uh, Let's focus on what's right with a person. Let's focus on well-being and happiness and what makes a person shine. And let's focus on intrinsic motivation and self-determination and what makes, you know, what makes people love. Um, And so, again, you know, the relationship is that within positive psychology comes this idea of self-determination and self-determination is all about this idea of intrinsic motivation where people do what they love people do what they want to do not because of any sort of extrinsic reward or motivator like grades or stickers or stars or whatever but just because they want to do it um and so that really, I mean, for me, that's that's the highest form of life, to be doing what you want to be doing. Um, and I hope that for kids all over the world, I really do, I hope that kids are for most of the day doing what they love and doing what they want to be doing. Can you tell us about Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan's research at Rochester? Yeah, so um, I started off getting to know their self-determination theory deeply, um, really getting to know what intrinsic motivation is and how it works. And then I got really involved in their sub-theory called cognitive evaluation theory. And cognitive evaluation theory just sets out the environmental tenets that facilitate intrinsic motivation in humans. Um, And again, the key word is facilitate because obviously you can't force intrinsic motivation because that would be extrinsic. So I got really into their sub theory because I began to think how important it is. And it's like, it's literally the magic of, of everything. It's the magic of teaching and education. It's the magic, you know, they teach cognitive evaluation theory to physicians in terms of healthcare um, and to employers, you know, in terms of industrial psychology. But cognitive evaluation is really, again, the tenets that support intrinsic motivation. And there's these three tenets. And the first one is competence. And the second one is autonomy. And the third one is relatedness. And what DC and Ryan will say is if, you know, if you can facilitate a sense of competence, autonomy, and relatedness in a human, then it's so much easier for them to get to a place of intrinsic motivation. And if you don't have a sense of competence, if you don't feel autonomous, and if you don't have a sense of relatedness or con- connectedness, or I've heard that described as a sense of purpose, yeah, um, then is, that makes intrinsic motivation more difficult. That's when extrinsic motivators need to be brought in to motivate someone. Exactly. I mean, it makes it so hard. I can't imagine intrinsic motivation without those three, without competence, autonomy, and relatedness. So it seems... It's, it's seemed to me for a long time that it's almost too easy 
to map these three factors, competence, autonomy, and relatedness onto school and just say, this is the reason so many kids don't like school uh, because they're not allowed to become deeply competent or anything. There's very low autonomy. And a sense of relatedness might be there for some kids if they feel like they're really a member of the school's community, if they're valued, a sense of belonging. But I know that my experience in school, that all of those were pretty minimal. It, it felt pretty alienating to me. I mean, is this... Can I do this? Can I map these things on and just say, this is why kids don't like school? Is that yeah. a reasonable thing to do? I think it's an absolutely reasonable thing to do. And, and this is why we need sticks and carrots, grades and gold stars to, to motivate kids to do schoolwork? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if, if you don't have those three, again, you know, the competence aspect is really, I think is really important because we always think, yeah, of course kids are feeling competent, they get grades. So, you know, <laughs> and, and teachers make lesson plans. So of course there's competence. Um, but competence is really this, you know, again, within self-determination theory, a very internal feeling. It's very hard to extrinsically feel competence. It's very hard, even if you get an A, I mean, do you really feel competence in something you've gotten an A in? Um, we could talk about that pretty much all day. Um, but the real inner feeling of I am good at this and I want to explore this more, that's something you don't really have the time or space to acknowledge or do within school. Because it's pretty much all about academics, you know, unless you get to participate in something like drama or mock trial or band or sports teams, which, you know, kids generally do love to do. And I, I feel like that must be related to the fact that competence is so much more visible there and so much more accessible because it's more physical, it's more auditory. It's not all this, uh, you know, fairly cerebral, abstract performance that must happen. Um, and also relatedness, the fact that you are opting into a community in these extracurricular activities, just the, the basic fact that they are voluntary, that must make... I'm trying to figure out here why so many kids hate school in terms of classes and academics, but might love the extracurricular parts of school. And they will continue to go to school just to participate in those extracurriculars. Yeah, and I think part of it is that in school, um, and, and P.S., you can definitely be intrinsically motivated to do chemistry or physics or math. You know, those are all things you can be absolutely intrinsically motivated to do too. But I think that also, you know, in school, within, you know, 2019, you're fed a lot of information in specific subject classes. So it's a lot of direct lecturing. It's a lot of listening to what you're fed. And in things like theater and things like band and orchestra and sports, you know, the feeding is not there. It's up to you to make it happen. And I think there's a distinct difference there. I have a colleague um, that talks about, you know, I only went to school because I got to play the drums mm. um, after in band. I know for myself, I was really super good at school. Um, but the only reason I was super good at school was because there was a specific graded point average that you had to have to do theater. And I loved theater so much. Mm. And so, you know, that's, that's why I was good at school, because I got to do theater after and I got to be me. Um, and, and the getting to be you is a is a huge part. I think kids don't get to be themselves a lot in school. Yet in after in after school, extracurricular activities, there's a lot of time and space to be themselves. Um, and I think that that is so important. 
So let's talk about your research because you are pretty much the the preeminent researcher who's taking self direct excuse me self determination theory and looking at home education self directed education in alternative schools through that lens and that was your dissertation it was uh, titled differences in competence autonomy and relatedness between home educated and traditionally educated young adults like what did you discover in this phd research yeah, it's interesting. And that came from um, my master's degree. I wish it's so funny. My master's thesis was written on a typewriter and I literally don't have a copy of it. Oh, no. <laughs> there was no like <laughs> psych articles. It was, it was written on a typewriter. There is no copy to be found. I want to search my parents' basement for a copy of that because that was really, really good. Um, but my master's thesis was an ethnographic study of intrinsic motivation in homeschoolers. And from that came this idea to go deeper into cognitive evaluation theory and to really compare traditionally schooled students and homeschool students within the realms of competence, autonomy, and relatedness. Um, and again, I, I went in very neutral. I did not know what was going to happen in this study. Um, and what happened was really cool. So I gave the study, it was a questionnaire, and there were a group of homeschoolers and a group of traditionally schooled students. Um, and in the realm of competence, you know, homeschooled students felt very much competent. Realm of autonomy, homeschooled students felt very much more autonomous. And I think that was probably just assumed. I assumed that that was going to happen um, just because the freedom in terms of that's, you know, that happens within the homeschooling, sure. homeschooling environment. Um, the relatedness thing, again, because there was so much talk about social isolation and homeschoolers, I really thought that homeschoolers were going to... Um, maybe feel less relatedness to their parents, to their community, to their outside world. And what ended up happening was that traditionally schooled students and homeschoolers um, felt fairly equally related to, you know, their community, their neighborhood, their parents, and the outside world. So I know that was something that, that really surprised everyone. Um, it was an interesting study. You always wish you could do more within your dissertation. I think every single person who's ever done a doctorate wishes they could have done more, wishes they could have collected more information, wishes they could have had a bigger sample size. Um, and so through my other studies, I've tried to do more with that dissertation. Go ahead and tell us about your other studies. What has your focus been on since uh, you started working at Hunter College? Yeah, so it's been really interesting. Um, I have really tried to, again, I, I love cognitive evaluation theory. I love self-determination theory. So I've written a study about uh, homeschoolers and self-determination theory and cognitive evaluation theory as well as unschoolers. And those were two separate studies. Um, I did a study on unschooling and its relationship to attachment parenting, uh, which I always think is very interesting. Um, I've done a cross-cultural study on unschoolers in Hong Kong. And one of the things after this book is published that I hope to do is more cult uh, cross-cultural studies on unschoolers and homeschoolers around the world. Um, I've done, of course, the studies that everyone knows, uh, the 2013, you know, unschooling families study uh, that happens to be really well publicized. And then we did as a sort of sequel to that, the two 2015 studies on young adult unschoolers. And by we, it's Peter Gray and I. Um, 
So yeah, my research has really stayed within the realm of homeschooling and unschooling and self-directed learning. I explore intrinsic motivation and cognitive evaluation in some of my studies, but I also do other things. I also, um, again, I'm very interested in parenting and unschooling, and I'm very interested in uh, other forms of self-directed learning. So more recent studies, we're doing a study right now, uh, Peter Gray, uh, Kevin Curry-Knight, and other colleagues are doing a study on Hudson Valley Sudbury School, which we're super excited about. Um, so I want to explore more self-directed learning spaces, um, and again, in the future, want to explore and do more studies cross-culturally in terms of homeschooling and unschooling, because it looks very different in different places. I would love to do an entire podcast episode about each of these studies that you're discussing, but yeah, there's, you this know, is fascinating. It's so cool because you spend so much time on research and it's, it's generally free. You don't really, the only study that I've ever been grant funded is uh, an unschooling and reading study um, that I did. And that was a really cool study. I, I love talking about how, you know, students learn to read in self-directed learning environments. Um, but these studies are, not read. <laughs> the only people who read them are like researchers and those who are interested in homeschooling, unschooling, and academic perspective. Um, but they're really cool to talk about. And I think they say some really, um, really neat things about the movement itself. Um, and there's also really great stories within there. Hmm. So did you say that you compared uh, homeschoolers and unschoolers, or you did two different studies about, with homeschoolers who are you who are a bit more maybe conventional and unschoolers who are a bit more unconventional in their approaches. Uh, can you tell me about those? Like what, what was the difference in terms of self-determination theory between these two broad groups? Yeah, so they were review studies, so there was no uh, subjects or no sample size, but uh -huh. they just looked at homeschooling research versus and unschooling research in two different studies and looked at, you know, which kind of realm uh, focuses maybe on intrinsic motivation more, which realm really addresses the whole issue of cognitive evaluation theory, competence, autonomy, and relatedness. So again, I just took it apart because with homeschoolers, I saw that, you know, now we have categories. In the 1990s, there weren't categories. We didn't have like homeschoolers versus unschoolers versus radical unschoolers. Um, there was no categorization. And so now that there are these categories, I'm really interested in examining the different spaces in terms of motivation itself. So I would just guess that unschoolers would rate themselves as higher on on autonomy. It, would that be correct? Or yeah, I think again, you know, there was no sample size. I'd I'd love to do a specific subject study, um, but in unschooling, you just naturally see more autonomy, more freedom. I think I love the quote that Sandra Dodd said, where she says, you know, unschooling is like the best Saturday ever, right? Like you have the freedom over and over again, over and and over again, and who doesn't want to live that life, right? Especially those of us who live for Saturdays. Um, and so, yeah, inherent in unschooling is this real self-determination and this real, you know, this real sense. I mean, you you could smell it of of competence and autonomous learning and and relatedness. Um, I love in one of our in one of Peter Gray and our studies, um, a parent talked about how 
amazing the side effect of unschooling was in terms of family relationships and family relationships even in the teen years being really close you know it she didn't have like teenage like her daughter didn't have teenage angst it was just really flowy and amazing and she felt so related to her children um so i love that so i love hearing stories about it um i think it's just so interesting and i think it really tells you a lot about ideal learning environments as a whole and what those could look like. How do you deal with the issue of cause versus effect when it comes to, uh, let's, let's talk about unschoolers, for example. Are unschoolers those who are already uh, naturally more self-directed, more competent, more, uh, more able to handle autonomy? They have closer relationships and that makes them successful as as freeform learners or does the unschooling environment somehow shape these characteristics and and make young people more competent more autonomous is there a way to measure that it's hard right because like the whole idea of parenting comes into play Mm. um the whole idea of environment comes into play and for me it's very difficult to separate parenting and unschooling um and that might be my bias as an unschool parent i can't i can't cognitively separate the two out Mm. um so i don't know i will say that in kids who have been in school of course we talk all about de-schooling right and that process of just getting out of the mindset um and i think that that de-schooling process has so much to tell us about what it's like to be in an environment that might be more extrinsically motivated, that might be more dependent on grades and and success and what you do versus an environment that allows you to be who you are um, and allows you to do things when you want to do them. Those are two very different environments. And I think the de-schooling process as a whole might tell us a lot about like the differences and cause and effect and environment and things Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think change in mindset is always really hard. What about your attachment parenting study? What questions were you asking and what answers did you find? Yeah, so that was a really interesting study because I super thought that we were going to find out that most unschoolers were attachment parents. <laughs> um, and that was that was a bias. That's where I came in with bias because, um, you know, in my experience, attachment parenting sort of like grew into a a more intrinsically motivated, closer relationship with my child. Therefore, I was like great with having him here with me and home and all of those things. Um, So I thought I was going to find that there was a very direct relationship between unschooling and attachment parenting. And what I really found was that, you know, the group was split. I mean, there were some people where attachment parenting was sort of this um, place and this space where they found out about a whole like homeschooling, unschooling realm because of the um, mutual enjoyment they got from being with their child. Um, But then there were parents who were more free range and were more, you know, I want my child to be this autonomous human being. And, and so I wasn't expecting that I wasn't expecting um, parents who had other philosophies, to be honest with you. And it was really cool to see that, you know, unschooling parents come from many, many different places. And it's not all like unschooling attachment parenting, unschooling attachment parenting, there's a lot of different parenting styles um, that might find things like unschooling and homeschooling attractive. That's something that I think has kept this field very interesting for me, that it's not super homogenous in the sense of of 
political beliefs, ideology about parenting. Uh, within the realm of unschooling, you can have radical Christian unschoolers, you can have attachment parenting, you can have free-range parents, you can have parents who have very, I'd say, conventional school-like beliefs, and they just see unschooling as the most rational and effective way to let their kids learn. And you could put lots of these families together in the same room, and they, they might not get along very well, aside from the fact that they all support uh, giving their kids a lot of autonomy, letting their kids develop a lot of competency, and letting them develop more authentic relationships with the people around them. Yeah, it's the coolest part of unschooling, right? Like, I love, like, I want the unschooling realm and, and the self-directed learning realm to be a diverse place where all are accepted and embraced. And I think um, that was, it was a nice, exciting perk from this study. I saw that there were many different paths to unschooling. I'm going to ask you about another one of your studies. But first, for anyone who is really interested to read one of these studies, how do they find your studies online? Sure. So the easiest way is to go to academia.edu and search Gina Riley at Hunter College. Um, and then, you know, if you just Google um, some of my studies, so if you just Google like Dr. Gina Riley, you'll find them, they'll come up. Um, I've always toyed with the idea of a website. I, you know, again, I've, I've always just done these studies for for my personal intrinsic motivation, truthfully. Um, and so there has never been any sort of like, ooh, I, I want to be great within this realm. It's just been really, um, it's been selfishly for me because I love doing these studies. I love research. Um, and also, you know, <laughs> made a way for my parents to be accepting uh-huh. of my there it weird is, educational right there. choices. We put our finger on the button. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think it's, it's wonderful. You are doing these studies, not because you're getting paid to do them. You're doing them purely out of intrinsic motivation. A, l- a little bit of self-interest there too, but but hey, that's okay. We all have that. Yeah. You, you know, again, with the researcher bias, find one researcher that's not super interested exactly. in their own topic, right? Exactly. The, the one who says, I have no bias is the one you have to watch out for. Yes. Yes, exactly. So what about the study about unschoolers in Hong Kong? Uh, what were you aiming to learn there? So it's so interesting. Um, that was a study that was really more of a personal interview with Karen Chow. Um, while we were writing our 2013 study on unschooling families, a woman named Karen Chow reached out to me uh, through email and just said, hey, you know, I'm here in Hong Kong and it's a really hard place to do any type of self-directed learning. And here we are doing it. Um, We talked via email for a while. She had two children um, and she also was involved in an organization called Ed Diversity. And she really just wanted a place and a space to really, you know, kind of show the world and to kind of show the ministry in Hong Kong that, hey, we're, you know, we're doing it and this is how we're doing it. We're not the only ones who are doing it. And it really works for us. And so we did a paper. And again, it was really an interview. It was an extended interview um, about, you know, what she thought unschooling and homeschooling was and what it looked like in Hong Kong, but also what it looked like in terms of her family and her children. If I remember I love- correctly, Karen had some success lobbying the, the Ministry of Education in Hong Kong. Is that right? 
Yeah, she's been amazing, and she's been she's been doing great things in the ministry um, since then. Um, we keep in touch every so once in a while. She'll send me really really sweet emails, um, and I'm again I'm so happy as a researcher to be able to make that personal connection with someone across the world. Um, and I think through that study, we were able to really legitimatize um, unschooling there, and that study has been used um, in Hong Kong to really explain the whole you know self-directed learning deal and to really tell the ministry hey like this is not <laughs> this is these are not the only people who are doing this in this world right um and that so, was that's was it favorite. used to, to help make homeschooling or unschooling more of a legal uh, option in hong kong i think it was used i don't, I don't want to make broad conclusions <laughs> um i'd love to say yes it was definitely a part of it but i think it was really used for karen for her family and for the organization she was involved in um to be able to tell her story mm. uh, and and how that assisted or helped is again you know something maybe karen would know more about than i sounds like i should get her on the podcast she's amazing she's amazing <laughs> All right. And now uh, tell me about this upcoming study, the one you're doing with Peter Gray and Kevin Curry-Knight about the Hudson Valley Sudbury School. I had a chance to visit that school last year, and it's it's gorgeous, beautiful. It's It really feels like a great example of what a Sudbury School can be. Uh, so I, I'm very curious. Yeah, it's so gorgeous. I visited it last year. Um, and so what I guess this is Peter's, you know, Peter had done the first study on Sudbury schooling uh, years ago. And he really wanted to re-examine uh, the notion of Sudbury schools as a self-directed learning space and how this maybe fits into the realm of, you know, intrinsic motivation and self-determination. Um, so we got a bunch of researchers together. It will be myself, uh, Peter, Kevin Curry-Knight, um, Lisa Puga from Rutgers, and uh, Laura Pretty from Denver Public Schools. And we are in the midst of really serving alumni of the school and talking to them about their experience at the school academically, socially, um, about their experience later in terms of higher education and careers, about their experience within the political realm um, and how that might be influenced by democratic schooling. So it's a study that is in IRB uh, approval status right now. Probably by the time this podcast comes out, we will be actually involved in the research process, getting the data um, and it's a study I'm so excited about. Again, I've never really gone outside like my comfort zone in terms of uh, my comfort zone is always the homeschooling, unschooling, self-directed learning space. And to be able to branch out into looking at Sudbury schooling and democratic schooling and all these different forms of schooling is really an honor for me. Gina, I want to bring it back to autonomy, relatedness and competency and specifically that autonomy factor, I think, is is often a really challenging one for parents to figure out where to land because they want to be very supportive of their kids' autonomy. But at the same time, for a lot of kids, whether they're unschooled or not, that looks like YouTube or video <laughs> games or something that you know makes a parent very uncomfortable. Uh, so, so what does it mean to be a, supportive of a kid's autonomy? 
uh, yeah, to so, help them become more intrinsically motivated. It's so funny because when I talk to my teachers about competence, autonomy, and relatedness, right, every teacher is scared of autonomy. Um, I think most parents sometimes get fearful a little bit about autonomy because if you allow your kids all these choices, you are basically saying, you know, wherever you land is fine. And if you end up in the land of YouTube all day long, <laughs> that is totally okay. Or if you land in the realm of video games all day long or Minecraft, that is totally fine. And I think there's a lot of fear surrounding true autonomy and what that means. Um, when I talk to parents within self-directed learning environments, I'll always say, you know, you can give, you can have limits on autonomy if that's what you feel comfortable with. I think within the homeschooling and unschooling realm, it's most important for parents to feel comfortable with what they're doing. Um, so I think it's important for them not to do the things that we as researchers or as people in the field say they should do, but I think they should be doing things that they feel comfortable and good about, right? Because part of this whole realm is you want the relationship between parent and child to be comfortable. It's really hard to unschool or homeschool um, if you're worried about limits and if you're worried about whether the things you're doing is correct. Um, so I think in terms of parenting, I think it's really important to take autonomy and I'll tell the same thing to my teachers in a way that makes you feel comfortable. You're making me think of, I think it was John Holt or maybe Pat Ferenga who defined unschooling as as giving your kids as much freedom as you can personally bear yes. as a parent, which uh, I think that's a brilliant uh, way to summarize it. Because as you said, if you kind of go past your own boundaries as a parent, you know, it's one thing to, to try to expand your boundaries a little bit and say, okay, maybe my kid playing Fortnite all day is not completely, uh, you know, wasting her life away. Uh, maybe I can be a little <laughs> bit more patient and try to be more understanding. But to to go way past your boundaries and say, well, to do this unschooling thing, I got to let my kid do whatever they want all day long. And then if you develop a bunch of anxiety as a parent, and then that turns into you somehow lashing out or somehow, uh, you know, kind of getting revenge on your kid in another realm of life, I imagine that's not good for relatedness. Yeah. Yeah. I worry about the definitions, right? This is why I worry about like the, the definitions between what homeschooling is and what unschooling is and what radical unschooling is supposed to be, right? It seems very defined. And I think um, my message is always like, you just want to give enough autonomy <laughs> so that you're comfortable with it. I think that's really, really important. I love that quote. That's an awesome quote. Um, there is such thing in DC and Ryan's research termed autonomy support. And I think this is something that's been written about a lot. Um, DC and Ryan especially go into it when they talk about self-determination theory. And autonomy support is only providing choice and opportunity. So you're giving autonomy, but you can be supportive of that autonomy by presenting choices or opportunities. And then, of course, it's up to the person to, you know, take the choice that they want or to grab onto the opportunity that they want. So I think that whole realm of autonomy support is important. I think sometimes we think autonomy is just allowing our kids to just like run, run wild and free, which is what some people think unschooling is. And I think a lot of the times unschooling parents are very autonomy supportive and do this very well. Um, a lot of unschooling parents that we 
research in our study of the unschooling families said that, you know, I enjoy providing choice for my kids. I enjoy providing different sorts of opportunities and they can pick and choose which one most interests them. Um, And that's something that was very intrinsically motivating to the parent themselves. So again, you know, autonomy is not all just running wild and free. There is such thing called autonomy support where you provide choices and opportunities and you see which one, you know, like your kid picks out. Um, I have an interesting personal story about this. So, please. yeah. So my son is a trained classical guitarist. His bachelor's degree is in classical guitar performance. And the reason he started playing guitar um, was not because... Like, it wasn't like he picked up a guitar one day and he started watching YouTube videos and he just loved it so much the very first time. Um, Basically, how this happened was I was taking guitar lessons (laughs) because I wanted to learn the guitar. Um, And I was practicing and I would do this for like a couple of weeks. And he was like, well, I want to learn that chord. Teach me that chord. And I was like, I just started. I have no idea what to do. Like, I don't know how to teach you. Um, but I'll, you know, I'll give you a lesson. And he was like, nah, I don't really, you know, I'm not really into this. I don't really want lessons. So I was like, well, you know, if you want them, they're there. I, I'm fine with like giving you lessons and having you go to someone who could teach you better than I can. Um, So he kept hearing me play guitar. And a couple of months later, he's like, yeah, I'll take you up on the offer of lessons. Um, And he started playing guitar. And again, you know, at first he was okay with it. Like it was kind of fun. Um, And then he learned to improvise and he started loving, loving, loving it. So, I mean, again, it was, it was the choice was out there. I didn't care whether he took it. He took it anyway, um, and then it just became his love and his passion and his whole heart. Um, and he learned classical guitar, entered a classical guitar performance bachelor's program, um, and is now getting his master's in music theory. So again, I mean, it's it's sometimes just not like, oh, they get so into it and it's all by themselves. Sometimes there's the exposure to the thing that makes you want to do the thing. I agree. And that word exposure is so uh, charged for some people. I, we did a whole other podcast episode just on this idea of exposure. And and this is kind of locked into the, the homeschooling mythology through another word, strewing. It is yeah. you, you throw stuff out there and that your kid might be interested in. But I feel like that can make a, a parent quite anxious also because yeah. it, it's kind of like you're choosing the curriculum for your kid. You're, you're thinking, okay, my kid's 11. What should I get them interested right. in this year? And, and that, I don't know, does that fall under the realm of autonomy support when a parent is, is, is... yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so it depends again, you know, I think it really depends when I do parent coaching. Um, I think it really depends on whether this whole autonomy supportive idea is extrinsic or intrinsic, right? Do they want to their kids to learn about architecture because they think they would be a great architect someday? Or do they want their kids to learn about architecture? Do they want to expose their, their kids to architecture because, you know, either they think it's interesting or because it's just like out there in front of you and you see an architecture book in the library and you say, oh, this looks really cool for me. Um, doesn't have to look cool for you, right? So it's really the intention behind the throwing ideas and choices out, right? Um, and I think that intention is something that's really important to think about when you're thinking about autonomy support. Is the intention intrinsic or is the intention extrinsic? 
What about when a kid is making an intrinsic choice to try something new, let's say guitar, but then when things get hard, when the guitar teacher is giving your kid critical feedback and, you know, not in a mean way, but in an effective, you know, tutoring way, or the kid signs up for their first community college class and then there's real homework that's assigned. And how do you play with intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation in these situations where the kid has to voluntarily submit to a, a structure that is often uncomfortable or foreign feeling. Um, is it still an intrinsic if you, I'm sorry, is it still autonomy supportive if you as a parent say, hey, don't just quit, you know, stick with it? Because uh, it, that could feel extrinsic. That could feel a bit coercive to some people. Yeah, I think that is extrinsic. And I think it is a little coercive. I think wording and language is so important. Um, it's one thing to say, don't just quit, you know, don't just quit, just try harder. And it's another thing to ask the individual, do you want to quit? And are there reasons why? Um, Mm -hmm. Kids who have been exposed to intrinsic motivation will know that things get challenging and hard, (laughs) right? If you've ever, um, learned something on your own, or if you've ever been exposed to something and you want to know more, you think eventually you're going to get to a point and you kind of know this with practice, you kind of know that there's going to be a point where things get hard. So on guitar, like the regular chords are great and there's bar chords and you have to get calluses to like get through them. Right. Um, And so, you know, it's all about how you ask the question, Hang in there is different than do you want to quit? So if you had a kid, let's let's stick with guitar. Let, you do have a kid. <laughs> I do have a kid. He's 24, but he's, okay. he's okay, let, let, kid forever. <laughs> yeah, let, let's go back a decade. Let, let's yeah. say you were having that conversation and and uh, your son says, I, God, this is really hard. I don't know if I want to do this. And then you ask the question, well, do you want to quit? Uh, I mean, where do you go in the conversation from there as a parent? Uh, where would you go? I mean, I listen a lot (laughs) and that's, and that's really where I go. Um, I tend to listen a lot and not ask too many questions because the more questions I tend to ask, the more pressure I tend to feel. Um, and so it's more in the listening. Um, it's more in the sharing of experiences for me. Um, it's a nice way to have conversations with kids and it's a nice way as your kids become adults to have conversations with them as adults. Um, for me, even now, my son is 24 and when we have conversations, it might start with a question, but it ends up with a lot of listening and just a lot of bouncing ideas around. So there's really no end result in my head. Um, it's always been, you know, do you want to do this? And if it's no, there's always a question why. And that's it. It's all about the listening. Hmm. Wow, that's very helpful. All right, I want to shift gears one more time. Um, a lot of your teaching experience is in the realm of of talking about kids with learning disabilities. And that is a question that I hear all the time in relation to unschooling. Can this work for kids who are dyslexic? Can this work for my ADHD kid, for my autistic kid, etc.? And so I'm sure you've navigated these questions a lot. What What's your gut response to those? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of layers. Um, the first thing is that 
schools do give labels and diagnoses a lot. Um, I'm glad that in special education, we're beginning to really enter this realm of disability studies where labels are limiting. And so we're not going to give labels or diagnosis. But for now, there's a lot of labels and diagnoses. And truthfully, I do believe in diagnoses because I sometimes think that it gives an answer to a question that a person might have about themselves. So, mm. you know, I, I, I really, I always strongly believe in good diagnosis. And I think if there's a weakness and we all have them, it's sometimes nice to be able to define that so you can manage it. Um, that being said, uh, I think the first layer to unpack is, uh, is the disability, you know, just seen in school? Is the disability also seen at home? In my unschooling and reading study, the thing I was probably most curious about is the notion of late readers or kids who read after the age of 10 in the New York City school districts. Late readers are truly kids who read after the age of seven. Um, and my question has always been, you know, are kids really developmentally ready to read at the age of six or seven? Is that just the age and then everything else is a late reader? Or is there a range? Um, I've read studies before. Harriet Pattison's study um, has talked about the range of learning to read. And in the study of unschoolers and reading, we also found that there were students that read at 10, you know, and that started reading at 10. And there were students that started reading at 13. And it was all okay. Whereas in schools, if you started reading at 10 or 13, you would certainly be diagnosed oh my gosh. Yeah. learning disability. Um, and so I always think that's an interesting thing to unpack. Is this something school-based or is this something that's really an issue? Obviously, dyslexia exists. I've seen it too many times to deny its existence. Um, there are some people that just have an inefficient pathway when it comes to reading, um, but usually a visual strength. So there's lots of layers to unpack there. Um, is it, you know, can you unschool or homeschool with an LD or ADHD or an emotional behavioral disorder? My gosh, yes, I probably um, purport it as a really actually wonderfully healing type of um, education in terms of disability. I think with Learning disabilities in particular, kids in schools deal with a lot of learned helplessness. Kids in school deal with a lot of struggle in terms of inferiority feelings compared to their peers. And I think that sometimes a self-directed learning environment can let go of that struggle a little and really give the students space to really explore and learn as they're comfortable. Um, it also gives them feelings of success. You know, when your whole life is not based on whether you can read or not, uh, you can feel really competent in other ways. And that competence can get you through uh, whatever weakness you might have. And we all have them. Right? That's definitely my experience working with, with young adult unschoolers, teenagers at, and preteens. Uh, the ones who are, are not talented in the traditional academic realms do seem to have almost always developed a strong talent or multiple talents in these other realms. And that gives them this natural sense of confidence and an ease in the world. And, and they don't look like these school kids who have been kind of browbeaten and, and they're very timid and they're ashamed every day of their life in school because they cannot perform up to the standards uh, of the conventional school system. And so that, that must 
that must play into mental health. And and I think when I have to tackle this question, like at a Q&A about unschooling and uh, special needs or learning disabilities, yeah. I, I like to say, well, y- you might lose a little bit of, of specialized support that would come from like the public school system. But the number of of conditions that might evaporate or become severely uh, reduced by just simply getting out of that pressure cooker, uh, I think that's often worth it. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's it's very research based, right? Like Yale has a center for dyslexia and creativity. Uh, we know that students who struggle in some ways have great talents in others, and I think it's really time. I think, you know, I think the next decade we'll see it too. We'll see it more within the realm of special education and disability studies too, where we really need to go back to celebrating strengths, and we really need to be able to see and allow uh, kids to shine in the ways that they are intrinsically motivated to shine. Um, and I think that's really super important. And research says it too. Uh, speaking of the future and speaking of research, my last question for you, Gina, is where are you headed in terms of research? What are your next big moves? Yeah, so I think um, I love this realm so much. It's my whole heart. Um, I hope to be doing this forever, truly. Um, I am so excited to be within the writing process of this book. I'm really excited about this book. Um, I've done a lot of research all my life on on unschooling and homeschooling, and it's so nice to take that research and to take the research of others, more importantly, and put it into this one academic book. Um, again, I, I just want to legitimatize the field. I, I really, that's thats my whole intrinsically motivated purpose. It's always been. Um, I'm really excited about the Hudson Valley Sudbury School study. I'm super excited about doing further cross-cultural studies. And I think more popular writing is probably going to be in my future too. I tend to do a lot of academic writing um, and that's the style I'm most comfortable with. And I can't wait to sort of branch out into more writing and articles within the popular realm. I am very excited for that. And we will bring you back on the podcast as soon as your your first major popular book is out. (laughs) You're so sweet. Thank you so much. Uh, Gina, thank you so much for taking the time. And thank you for doing the research. Thanks so much for inviting me on. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you for your work as well.